0: I'm going to ask that you turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. I'll be looking at the last half of the chapter. We began our series of studies in Joshua with the first nine verses last week. And this morning, we'll look at verses 10 through 18. Please give your attention to God's word. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people "...prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess." And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, "...remember the word that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, "...the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan." But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving to them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, The book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, as our great high priest. And Hebrews tells us that he always lives to intercede for us. Jesus Christ is always praying for the church. That's a very important truth for us to understand. That Christ, even as we speak, is praying for the church. Do you ever wonder what he prays for? What does he ask? What's the content of the prayers of our risen savior, Jesus Christ? What's he praying for, for the church? Well, thankfully we have an example of a high priestly prayer of Christ in scripture. It's been recorded for us so that we can know how he's praying for the church. And it's interesting, if you study John chapter 17 and you study that prayer, you're gonna find out that there are several major themes to the prayers of Christ for the church. The first one is that Christ prays for the church to be filled with joy. It's an interesting thing. Have you prayed for the church to be filled with joy? He prays for the church to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be made like himself. Thirdly, he prays that the church should be protected from the evil one, from Satan, from his attacks, from his schemes. And then finally what you learn from John 17 is that Christ prays for the church to be one, to be united. And a matter of fact, of these major themes in his prayer, that's the only one that he repeats. He says it twice. He prays for the church to be one. To quote him exactly from John 17, he says, speaking of his followers, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is so important that it's a means by which the world knows that Christ is who he claimed to be. The unity of the church is extremely important to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question this morning. Is it that important to you? Does your life reflect the importance of the unity of the church? I think if we did have as high a priority on unity in the church as Christ does, we would treat each other differently. We would have different relationships among each other. I learned some hard lessons about church unity early in my ministry. Only a couple years after I finished seminary, I went to the second church that I served, which was in Kansas City, And I knew going in that it was going to be a difficult call. I had learned that there, in the candidating process, I had learned that the former pastor had been pressured to step down, that the leadership of that church did not think that he was suited for the job, and so they worked through appropriate means, but pressured him to step down from his position. The problem was there was a very large percentage of that congregation that was very close to that pastor and very loyal to him. And so essentially I knew that when I went out there I was actually going to serve two churches meeting in one building. Matter of fact, uh, I have said many times since then that uh, the only thing worse than a church split is a church split where both sides stay, (laughs) Makes, makes life in the church very, very difficult but I don't really believe that. I believe actually the best thing is for the two sides in any division to stay and through the gospel find healing and forgiveness and restoration. And I do believe that that is possible through Christ. That experience though, the several years that I spent there taught me a lot about peacemaking, about patience, about listening, and about the damage that division in the church can do to individual believers and to the ministry of the church as a whole, deep, deep damage that division brings about. But I also learned a lot about how precious the unity of the church is, how fragile it is, because the church is full of sinners like you and me, but how precious it is, how it needs to be protected at all costs. We also learn a lot about the value and the preciousness of the unity of God's people here in Joshua chapter 1. Let me put you in the context again. Remember that a whole generation of God's people have wandered in the wilderness waiting for that generation to die because they had refused to enter into the promised land when God first brought them there. But now a generation later they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River looking across the waters into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua is their new leader. Remember that this was a crisis time in the life of the people of God. The book begins with an ominous statement after the death of Moses. Moses, one of the greatest leaders that God's people have ever known, was dead and In the first nine verses we looked at last week, God calls Joshua to step into his sandals. That's something we pastors never like to do, is to step into big sandals, step into into a pulpit where a great preacher has been or a great leader has been in the church. And that's the situation Joshua finds himself in, following Moses, of all people, in his ministry. I'm sure that he had doubts and insecurities that he wrestled with. But at this point where... God comes to him and says, okay, now it's time to bring the people across the river to begin the conquest of the promised land. I'm sure that he's wondering to himself, are these people going to accept me as a leader? Are they going to follow? Are they going to give any credibility to my authority or my commands? It's in that context, verse 12, that Joshua decides to address a potential problem and here's where he shows some great leadership ability he recognizes that there is a potential for deep division among the people of God and so he tries to nip it in the bud here and he calls to him the leaders of tribes two, two and a half tribes the tribes of Reuben the tribe of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh remember that Israel is made up of 12 tribes But to go back and to give some of the historical context of this, what had happened earlier was that when the Jewish people had come into that territory that was east of the Jordan, now remember you have to picture a Bible map in front of you, and as you're looking at the map, to the right is to the east, and that's where they had been wandering in the wilderness, and they came to the River Jordan, which was the border of the Promised Land. And so they are... There, and they had taken this land, they had defeated the kings of the Amorites. And since they, in a sense, held, held uh, power over that territory, what happened was that two of these tribes, Gad, the tribe of Gad and the tra- tribe of Reuben, had come to Moses and said, we like this land. We're, we're, we're cattle farmers, we're sheep farmers, we're shepherds. We need good grazing land, and this land east of the Jordan is great for grazing our livestock. Why don't you just give us this land and we'll just stay here and you guys can go over and have the, the, the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. Well, if you remember the story, Moses got very angry at their request. Matter of fact, he accused them of being guilty of the same sin that the Israelites had been guilty of a generation earlier in Kadesh Barnea when Moses had sent the 12 spies into the land and 10, 10 of those 12 spies came back saying, the people are giants, The cities are huge, they're fortified, they have bigger weapons than we have, they have more weapons than we have. We cannot defeat these people. We can't do it. And as we reminded you last week, that's when Joshua and Caleb stood up as godly leaders and said, All those things are true, but God is with us. God has promised this to us. God will fight for us. We not only can do this, we will do this if we obey. But as you remember, the people believed the 10 spies instead of the two faithful spies. And so that's why they died in the wilderness under God's judgment, due to their lack of faith. And Moses says to these, these two tribes, when they're asking to settle and keep the land on the east side of the Jordan, instead of going into the promised land, he's saying, you're committing the same sin. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to bring God's judgment down upon his people again? And so the leaders of the tribes of Gad and Reuben gathered and they came back with a counterproposal. And they said, we tell you what, let us settle our people here, let us leave our livestock here, but we'll send our warriors, we'll send our military with you into the promised land. Matter of fact, we're gonna put ourselves, if you want us to, we'll go at the front of the troops so that there's full accountability. We'll, we'll fight at the front, on, the, on, the, on the front lines for you so you know that we're serving faithfully. No chance of lollygagging in the back or hiding out in the back or cherry picking in the back. None of that. There we'll be up front if you just let us settle our people in the lands here on the east of the Jordan. And Moses went for that. He agreed to that. He understood. He saw their counteroffer as a statement of faith. A statement of unity with the people of God. And he accepted their offer. And matter of fact, the half-tribe of Manasseh then joined in on that agreement. So we talk about those two and a half tribes that eventually settled on the east side of the Jordan. We call them the Transjordan tribes. And that's how I'll refer to them this morning. The Transjordan tribes who settled on the other side of the Promised Land. Just in passing, let me point out. One thing this shows us is that this really wasn't about the land itself if this was about the people of Israel settling in that geographical territory then Moses would have never allowed this it was about faith in the Lord faith in his promise and what that land represented in the far future that's what it really was about that's why it really wasn't that important that two of the two and a half of the tribes ended up outside of the boundaries of what the promised land was was given. So, this is the situation then. Joshua is now the new leader of the Israelites. Moses is gone. And Joshua recognizes that these people could renege on their promise now. They could take advantage of this opportunity to not follow through on what they said they would do. And this would be devastating to the people of God. And so he challenges them. But as I look at the challenges as we look together at the challenges that he lays before the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, as we look at the challenge, I want you to see that he's challenging them on their identity. Who do they see themselves to be? And he's saying that if you find yourself forming your identity in who God has said you are, then you will be unified. The unity that he appeals to in these transjordan tribes for these transjordan tribes is based in who they are in the grace of god i stress that because that is where we find unity isn't it think about the groups that you identify with the, the, the the where you belong who are your people where how do you form those senses of identity is it your demographic group you tend to say my people are like young marrieds with children or my people are retired people or, you know, we, we form identities that way. Very strong sense of identity here in Happy Valley, you know, that on, on football weekends we all wear white and blue and we all have the big logos on our chest and and we all go to the stadium and we, we cheer the same plays and we shout the same shouts and we chant the same chants and we sing the same songs and we say we are and we say Penn State and we, we go through all these rituals. We have this strong sense of identity here in Happy Valley. And yet, are we really unified? How deep does that unity go? Not very deep. You think about, well, we're we live in Happy Valley, so that's where our identity is. But is there really any depth of unity to the people who live in Happy Valley? Okay, well, we're in Pennsylvania. I mean, we, we really identify, but no. The flag of the United States of America, how much does that really unify us? doesn't go very deep, does it? If you want to find your identity, you've got to go deeper than that. You've got to go deeper than where you live. You've got to go deeper than the social circles you, circles you run in. You've got to go to your sense of who you are. What's your worldview? What's your philosophy? What are your values? If you want to find a unity that is strong and lasting. That's just true in human psychology, but it's especially true in spiritual realm. And so Joshua is going to appeal to not just worldview and values and philosophy, but he's going to appeal to the very gospel that we understand. He's going to appeal to to the grace of God. He's going to appeal to the work of God in us. Spiritual matters and that's where we find our true unity. The first thing he appeals to is our common destiny. Look at verse 13. We talked about the, the covenant with Abraham last week. Notice that he makes a reference to that covenant with Abraham. He says, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And then he goes on in verses 14 and 15 where he calls upon the Transjordan tribes to help until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. The Lord has promised you rest. What's he talking about? Well, that's the covenant with Abraham. Remember, God called Abraham to himself and said, I will be your God. You and your people will be my people. I will make of you a great nation and I will place that great nation in a great land And then that great nation in a great land under my reign will be a blessing to all nations, a light on a hill to all nations. That's what God had promised Abraham. That's the rest that Joshua is referring to here. You see, rest is a central theme of the covenant of grace. All the way back in the beginning. Remember when God finished creating the world. He said, That it was all good, and then he rested. And Eden was meant to be a picture of what rest really is. Not just ceasing to work, but a place of peace and prosperity and security and joy. That's what Eden was when God had finished creation. But Adam and Eve blew it. They rebelled. They brought sin into that place of rest and it became a place of struggle and division and darkness and evil. And so that became the hope. God said, I will send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That gave hope to the people of God that one would come to bring the rest that they had lost because of sin. Several generations later, a man named Lamech had a son named, he named Noah. He called his son Noah because the the word Noah in Hebrew sounds like the word for rest. And the scriptures quote him as saying after he named him Noah he said out of the ground the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us rest or relief. Lamech had hoped that Noah would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent and bring rest to the people of God. And he did bring a measure of relief but not the rest that we had hoped for. So here you have Joshua talking about the promised land, this land flowing mil- with milk and honey. This is meant to be, represent the rest of God. And that's what he's referring to. He says, we have been called to enter into this rest, and you have a responsibility to help us gain it through the conquest of the land. We long for rest at the very depths of your soul that's really what you want that's what you need it's what you long for I need to be free of this struggle against my own sin and the sins of everybody around me I need peace I need security I need the blessing of God all these things that we lost in Eden when sin entered into the creation and it was placed under God's curse Joshua says this place represents our rest, but in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we find out that Joshua didn't provide rest when he led the people into that land, that that was not the final rest that God had promised, it was only a picture of the rest that would come in Jesus Christ, that's what the book of Hebrews is about, that Christ by bearing the curse of sin and the penalty of sin upon himself when he died on the cross in our place and bore the wrath of God in our place, he won for us the rest of God. The rest of God is a gift that comes by grace, by belief in Christ, our risen Savior. And when you come to Christ and you come into his kingdom, you are given a promise of a rest to come that will be everything that we could possibly imagine everything that the scriptures have promised it will come to pass we will receive a new heavens and a new earth and Eden will be restored I say all this to say this is your identity you have been given this rest because what Christ has done for you this is your future Nothing like having a common destiny to pull you together as a people of God. We are headed for this place of rest when Christ comes again. There's an old hymn that was adopted by the African-American slaves in the South. I'm sure you've probably heard it. It goes like this. They used to sing it out in the cotton fields under their suffering and their oppression. They, say, they sang, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. That hymn captures that idea that our rest is still ahead of us and that we are joining together because we're going to the same place and we will inhabit that place for all eternity. That's a powerful unifying factor for the people of God. Secondly, Joshua points to our common father. We have a father in heaven. We share that in common and that gives us a deep unity. You see, the this, this situation that the tribes are in begs the question. If the Transjordan tribes have already received their lands, their rest, their preliminary rest then what's going to motivate them to go and fight and to lay down their lives and risk their lives for the sake of gaining the land on the other side of the Jordan? What will motivate them? Well, Joshua appeals to what should motivate them by calling them over and over brothers. It's brotherly love that's going to motivate them to go and fight for their brother's rest. Look at verse 14. You shall pass over arm before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. He emphasizes again and again here, you are brothers. Brothers and sisters in the covenant of grace. You are part of a spiritual family. How could one part of the family, how could some of the brothers... And sisters enjoy their rest while the rest of the family has not enjoyed theirs. He's appealing to something that's instinctual even to us as sinners. That it would be wrong for us to receive our inheritance while our brothers and sisters have not. We take the terms brother and sister too lightly in the church. We do use those terms for one another. Quite often I hear us calling ourselves brothers and sisters but Do we really mean it in the same sense that we talk about our physical brothers and sisters? Do we have the same sense of commitment to our brothers and sisters in the faith that we do to our physical brothers and sisters, those of you that have siblings? Do we have the same loyalty to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have to our physical brothers and sisters? Are we as willing to be patient with and to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we are with our physical brothers and sisters? You see, what the scriptures tell us is that the the bond that we share, the unity that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have all been cleansed in the shed blood of Christ, that that blood of Christ is a much deeper bond than our physical blood, our physical relationships, of our physical families, the blood of Christ unites us far deeper than our DNA. And yet, our lives don't reflect that. We don't have the same kind of sacrifice and commitment and loyalty to people in our church family that we do in our physical family. Do we have the attitude of Jesus Christ? Remember, he's praying for our unity. He's praying for us to see ourselves as brothers and sisters spiritually at a much deeper level so that we will be unified. He's praying for that for us even as we speak. Do you remember his attitude? Remember he was teaching a large crowd of his followers and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to get in and talk to you. Remember what he said? These people are my brothers and sisters and mothers. This is my spiritual family. These people have a right to call upon me as their elder brother, not those that are necessarily just born to me, to my physical family. While we strive to enter the full rest that has been promised to us in Jesus Christ, it is our mission to help all of our brothers and sisters in Christ to also enter into their rest. That's a big part of our mission. The third commonality that Joshua appeals to with these two and a half tribes is the common authority of God's word over us. He begins his exhortation in verse 13 by pointing to the word of God. He says, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Remember the word. And then he starts quoting from what we would call the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Numbers. He's quoting the word of God as it was given through Moses, the same word of God that guides and directs our lives. Remember what in his his call at the beginning of this chapter last week, we, where God said to Joshua, gave him the key to success in his leadership, beginning in verse seven He appeals to these Transjordan Transjordan tribes to be faithful to the word of God. They had made a promise and he's holding them to it because God had spoken through Moses to say this is what you shall do. Very important lesson on unity. That unity only happens when the word of God is recognized as the authority over the church, over God's people unity is always unity in truth and that's been a mistake that's been made way too often in the history of the church where we've tried to find unity by compromising on truth we have so much disagreement in the church it's very tempting to compromise on what the word of God teaches so that we can be unified but true unity and and Joshua recognizes here true unity is based in what God has said I want you to notice that Joshua does not try to lead on the power of his own leadership abilities, his charisma, his skills. He leads on the basis of what God has said. The authority of the word is where he understands his leadership comes from. And notice how the people respond the, the Transjordan tribes, you have their response starting in verse 16. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. That's an amazing statement of covenant loyalty, of commitment, and of submission to God-ordained leadership. Joshua got a big win here. He appealed to these tribes to not divide, to not separate, to not disobey the word of God and they submitted because he was God's appointed leader and he appealed to the authority of the word of God. They make an amazing recognition here. You have as much authority to lead us, they say, Joshua, as Moses did. You see, Moses was a great man of God, but these people understood. That a leader's legitimate authority is not based in his gifts, his skills, his personality, anything about him as a person. It's based in God's call and the authority of God's word that he represents. The authority was given by God, and that authority rested in the position that God established, not in the person who was in the position. And then they go on in verse 17. The people say, only may, God, may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Now, it sounds a little bit like a threat. You know, we're only going to submit to you and follow your leadership so long as the Lord is with you. They don't really mean it's a threat. It's actually a prayer. That was their hope. That, that was, they knew that that's what needed to happen. And they're praying that it be true. But there is a bit of a warning there for Joshua. That if he were to depart from the word of God, he would lose the power and authority of his position. His power and authority as a leader among God's people was totally connected to the word of God. And if he were to depart from the word of God, he would lose his authority and the people would rightly not listen to him. Again, a very important lesson for church leadership. Notice also that they recognize that if Moses is speaking for God and what he's saying is consistent to the word of God... That they are to obey, to obey him, they will go where he tells them to go, he'll do what he tells them to do, as long as it's consistent with the word of God, and if they rebel, notice the say, may that person be put to death. You see, that was rebellion, the sin of rebellion was a capital crime in Israel, that it actually brought the death penalty, if you were to reject the authority of the word of God, and the leader that God has appointed, if he's acting consistently with the word of God. It was treason worthy of the death penalty now of course we've talked about how the church is different than Israel we don't we're not given the power of the sword we don't inflict any death penalties but we do have the power of the leadership of the legitimate biblical leadership of the church has the authority to excommunicate and that's the New Testament equivalent if somebody will not accept the authority of the word of God then we will excommunicate them if they will not repent I say all this to just remind you that, again, we're talking about unity. Where does our unity come from? This is a hard lesson in this age. But unity comes from having strong biblical leadership and people willing to submit to biblical leadership in the church. You cannot have unity in the church without biblical authority. And we live in a very anti-authoritarian age. Leaders in the home, leaders in the community, leaders in the school, leaders in the church tend to be mocked, and ridiculed, and disregarded. That's the spirit of the age that we live in. Everybody's out for themselves. And leaders are to be torn down off of their pedestal. That's the way that this culture lives. In that kind of a cultural context, now more than ever, the church needs to be salt and light. We need to be seen as a place where leaders humbly lead according to God's word, and therefore they are respected and they are submitted to. Because that's the way that God set it up. There can be no unity in the church without strong leadership and submission from the people. The only question you need to think about when you look at the leadership of your church in whatever form it whatever officers, whatever body of leadership there is, the the question you have to keep asking yourself, is the Lord with them? Is the Lord with our leaders? And you know that as to whether they are acting according to the word or not. Where the word is, is taught and upheld as the authority in the church and where the spirit is present, Christ is present. And so, that's the question you need to ask are my leaders leading according to the word of God? Not according to your preferences, not according to your your background, your traditions, are they leading according to the word of God? And you are gonna disagree with your leadership. The leadership is gonna make decisions you don't like, that you don't think are wise, that you disagree with. The question you need to ask yourself, am I disagreeing with my leader because they are doing or acting or teaching in a way that is not in accordance with the word? or is it just not in accordance with my perceptions, my preferences, my traditions? It's all about the word. That's where authority lies. Is this a disagreement over principle or is it a disagreement over strategy and applying principles? If it's a disagreement over principle, then sometimes obeying leaders, whether it's in the church or the home or in the government, sometimes if obeying a leader in your life means disobeying the Lord, then you need to obey the Lord and not the leader. But you better make sure it's a principle. Make sure it's according to the word of God. Let me just wrap this up and bring it all together in one statement. We're talking about the mission of the church. How is the mission of Joshua and the people of Israel in entering and conquering the promised land, how is it like the mission of the church? And the thing that we learn from Joshua's speech to the Transjordan tribes today I'm going to summarize it for you in one sentence. Remember this sentence. Here's the key to our mission. Remember the word of the Lord and help your brothers and sisters until the Lord gives us rest. That's the mission of the church. Remember the word of the Lord and help your brothers and sisters until we all enter into his rest. That has not changed. And Christ has already provided it for us. Trust in him. And let's work together for this kingdom. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, I pray for unity in the church. I pray that we would be able more and more to set aside our own preferences, our own agendas, and come together around the scriptures. Come together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up godly leaders, humble leaders, sinners saved by grace who know their dependence upon the Spirit and the Word. And I pray that these leaders would be given wisdom from above to make good decisions, decisions that honor you and that serve the purposes of your kingdom. I pray that you would protect our leaders, keep them from falling into error, from falling into pride, from falling into the ways of the world. And Lord, I pray that we would together work for the glory of Christ to bring the message of the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.